All right, ladies and gentlemen, once again, thanks for coming out. Uh, this evening, transvaluation of all values, joy, not fear. Now, again, the transvaluation series, this is about what our values have been, where they came from, which is where we started. And then now we're moving towards looking the kind of values that we might want to adopt, or at least think about adopting, um, in our changing circumstances. The world is unlike it's ever been. Uh, it's changing quite rapidly. Our values tend not to keep up. Um, and so that's really what we're focused on. This is the third of the three sort of mini-series within that that I called You Are Not a Slave. And I call this joy, uh, not fear, because the, one of the key elements of keeping people enslaved in various ways is fear. If you can cause someone to feel fear, you can control their mind. And so this has been a very powerful motive force and making sure that we think the right way, feel the right way, and behave the right way for thousands of years. You do wrong, we'll kill you, you'll burn in hell, something bad will happen to you. So fear, you reinforce that with all kinds of threats, both physical, emotional, mental, whatever, so that you keep people in line. And so we've learned this. And so I want to explore this concept of fear and of joy and why probably it's better to focus on joy uh, than fear. First off, I want to note that fear itself is not, you know, quote unquote bad, right? It has a very good evolutionary power to it. Uh, fear helps you not die. And, and, and that's good because we often don't want to die. Uh, and if you think in nature, the, the one I always like is, is when the lion attacks the, the, the zebras, right? We've all seen this on National Geographic. The zebras are scared. We know that. They're filled with terror. And they run around to try to get away from the lion. And if the lion or the lion group, pride, I guess, gets a zebra, well, then all the zebras just seem to relax, <laughs> right? Is that weird? <laughs> It's that weird scene where then the lion pride is eating the zebra and the zebras are like 200 yards away eating grass quite contentedly. See, so on one hand, the fear of the lion is perfectly good, reasonable, helpful. It helps the zebras survive. Once the fear is passed, the lion is feeding. They seem to know this. They seem to know that lions don't have freezers, right? <laughs> and that, and that, that they're, they're okay now. But ima imagine us. Now, if we're at work and we're in you know, a cubicle office with a bunch of people and a lion comes in, fear, yes, absolutely appropriate. We're going to run around, we're going to scream, we're going to feel threatened, and then the lion gets a coworker, <laughs> right, and starts eating it in the middle of the officer. We don't go, all right, I can finish up those emails. <laughs> right? So we, don't, we don't do that. We are going to be freaked out for a long time. Right? This is going to leave a mark. We are not going to go, oh, we're pretty much safe now because it's eating. And so back to what we were doing, which was apparently very important. Right? No, see, we're, that fear, that the, the beauty of the hum, one of the beauties of humanity is our power to imagine. One of the problems with imagining is we can imagine all kinds of preposterous fears. So what originally, evolutionarily, was very good, which is in certain circumstances you want to respond powerfully with fear, we've extended that to all kinds of places where fear just is simply inappropriate. Running from a lion in many circumstances does not make sense, particularly when there's no lion. 
right? That's the, that's the thing you want to keep in mind. You just ask yourself, is there really a lion? And we're bad at this. So if you look at the fears that people have, one of the top fears is always public speaking. Now, you can be nervous about public speaking. I understand this. This is not unreasonable. We're social animals. So one of the things that happened with evolution is some of our fears got translated into the social sphere, right? That, that we, we need to fear, to a certain extent, social repercussions the way zebras need to fear lions eating them. Because if you lose your group, if you're outcast, you're probably going to die. <laughs> In uh, group cultures, and, and you know, so it does make sense for chimp uh, societies and other ape societies that you need to be able to maintain your position in society. So a certain amount of fear is reasonable, but I, I'm not sure. I mean, you'd have to be the worst public speaker in history for your society to throw you out and let you die. I mean, I, I'm sure if you've been to college, you've had the experience of thinking that might be a good idea, right? We've all been to that lecture. Uh, but, you know, I, I, don't, I can't find any historical reference that this has actually happened. Yet our fear, because we really only fear one kind of, we only feel one kind of fear, it's the fear of the lion attacking us, essentially. Um, Triggers, whatever it is, triggers that same fear and is completely inappropriate. But our, our, our culture has learned this. We can appeal to your imagination, give you learned fears, train you to fear things, and then use those learned fears to channel your mind. And then hence, of course, to channel your actions. So, you know, keep this in mind. Fear is not necessarily a bad thing, but the way we, the, all the learned fears that we've acquired uh, pretty much mislead us systematically. So this is a key element to look at. And the example I like, and that's the picture here, although it's a little hard to see in the black and white, this is one of those uh, crazy solo free climbers. And he's several thousand feet up in the air and he's hanging off a rock by his fingertips with no rope. Now the fear of heights is perfectly reasonable. You do not want to fall off of tall things that will hurt or kill you. The joy of learning to climb is that you say, if I have ropes and if I'm sufficiently skilled, I don't need that fear. I can unlearn what is in fact a totally natural and helpful fear. Uh, and hence, that's why people rock climb, which seems always suicidal to me, but that's because I have not unlearned that fear of heights. But we can unlearn the fears. People say, oh, they're inevitable. You learn, you can't overcome them. All the evidence is no, people do. We can. Um, and, and likely we should. Now turning to joy, uh, if you look at the roots of joy, what I've put here is you know feeling of pleasure and delight, source of pleasure and happiness from the old French joy, pleasure, delight, erotic pleasure in particular, bliss, joyfulness, from the Latin uh, expression of pleasure, sensual delight. Um, one of the keys here, joy and happiness are slightly different. We tend to overlap them, but I want to try to make them different so that you can get a sense of what joy means versus what perhaps happiness means. Um, the key, and this goes all the way back to the Latin, is twofold to keep in mind. One is joy is primarily internal. It's an internal thing. And two, it has to do with the senses. For the longest time, joy was associated with sensual pleasures, things you could feel, taste, smell, touch, hear. So primarily internal, primarily sensual. So you could you know, grab them. If you can't grab it, they were, they were dubious on whether it was a joy. 
Happy is easy, it just comes from uh, hap, which meant luck, lucky. Now the key here is luck is external. Something out in the world happens and it makes me happy. A little burst of pleasure, delight. And there's nothing wrong with that. But this is completely different, not in the way we always use it, by the way, but in its origins from something that is from within you and is within your touch, grass, feel, taste. Right? So this is because happiness tends to be uh, associated with the external things. If this happens, I'll be happy. If that happens, I'll be happy. If this other thing happens, I'll be happy. Joy that we want to focus on is really focused on the internal and the, and the physical, the palpable, the sensual, and it's all its many forms. And to move from the slavery of fear to sort of the freedom of joy is that shift often. Um, another note that I think is important is to move away from fear towards joy is, is moving towards freedom, being not moving towards being not being a slave. Uh, does not mean bad shit does not happen to you, right? Freedom doesn't mean freedom from unfortunate events, unpleasant circumstances. It has nothing to do with that. Uh, unfortunately, the human condition suggests there will be a certain number of uh, amount of unpleasantness in every life, as they say. Uh, but freedom says how you meet that. Again, the notion of values is values tell you what things mean. And so when external things happen to you, some of which will be unpleasant, unfortunately, but your values tell you what they mean. And that's what freedom means, is, is to adopt values that help you revalue, to reassess what is going on in the world. But there's nothing that's going to happen that's going to make bad things not happen. Freedom has nothing to do with that. It's important to keep that in mind, because people say, oh, you know, if you just embrace joy, something bad might happen to you, and then what? It's like, no, bad things will happen to you. Whether you're free or a slave, bad things will happen to you. It's how you respond to them. That is what the transvaluation of values is about. So once you get this notion of internal and external, right? Think of joy primarily internal, primarily sensual. Uh, the real question is, is, why do we not just always choose joy? It just seems the most obvious thing in the world, right? When in doubt, do something joyful. All the evidence suggests we're horribly confused about this. <laughs> that we're just not doing that. It's not a sorting rubric that we've adopted for decision-making about our lives and about how we understand the world. Um, I was thinking of the words that people have been banding around, around now. One is, is grit. I don't know if people know there's been this grit movement. Oh, why do people successful, right? It's because they have grit. They have, and grit is apparently the capacity to sort of, I don't know, chew on gravel. Uh, <laughs> if you can chew on gravel for a long time, then something good happens, apparently. Um, or, or people have drive, right? If people have drive, then something good happens, or, or they have success, right? Well, we, well, good things that happen are success. We want to be successful. 
Um, or we want to have discipline and grit so that we have the drive to be successful. I think that's roughly the title of the self-help book right there. Um, <laughs> and th the problem here is not, not, they never mention joy. This is my fundamental problem. They just don't talk about it. Uh, there was a study done on utopias, which I mentioned uh, a couple lectures ago, and almost none of the utopias, only one that anybody could come up with where they talked about laughter. If you come up with a utopia that has no laughter, I disbelieve in your utopia. You know, but, but, but no, it's about other things. It's about uh, success. Well, what does success mean? If, if success does not include joy, I want nothing to do with it. And if success does equal joy, then choose for joy. Don't choose for grit or discipline. Because <laughs> that's not joy, necessarily. And so that, you know, is we have all these other words that we want to pursue. And so, there, and again, you, I just can't ever remember the entire time I was in school, which was forever, slow student that I am, um, anybody ever said, you know, joy, this, this quarter will be focused on joy, this is the first of a four semester series on joy, <laughs> right? There'll be a test on joy on Wednesday, please be prepared. Uh, I don't remember anybody ever saying that, uh, and I, I don't, you know, and it, it sounds funny, but what the hell? What have we been studying all these years, if not something to deal with joy? Well, we've got to get a job, we've got to do this, we'll talk about all that, it's all nonsense, of course. Um, but we're confused about this for a couple of reasons, and one of them, first quote uh, um, here on the back, uh, this is a quote from Proverbs and Psalms, several times, both. Uh, this is all over the Bible. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That, uh, those exact lines are something that approximates them occur dozens of times. And that concept is absolutely core to the Old and New Testament. Fear, 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 and then have some fear. Here's a big plate of fear. So partly where our values come from, not exclusively, but partly the Judeo-Christian ethic is built on a big pile of fear. We've been told to fear things. And they actually say fear is the beginning of wisdom. This is absolute, utter, contemptible nonsense. The problem is, first thing, when you're afraid, you can't think. The psychological studies on this are perfectly clear. Once you lapse into a fear state, you can't think for crap. You can react in certain ways. Most of that's just rote training. So you can be trained to react to fear in a specific kind of way. That is not thinking. Now again, evolutionarily, that's a good thing. Because if a lion jumps in and starts attacking you and your coworkers in your office, you don't want to go, what are the chances of a lion? I mean, that seems incredibly unlikely, right? That person got eaten by said lion, right? So the no part of the notion of fear is to just turn your brain off. It fills you with all kinds of drugs, really lowers your pain receptors, by the way. If you're afraid, you can't hardly feel pain. Your pain just vanishes. You get endure, I mean, your, your body just biochemical, boom. It has nothing to do, you don't choose this, by the way. It's nothing to do with it. It's just, just an immediate response to help you survive. But one thing it doesn't help you do is think. That is for damn sure. 
There is no wisdom at all in fear. There's blind response, which is to say blind obedience, which is why fear is so popular. If I can make you afraid of things, I can make you jump because you're literally not thinking. It's just the most painfully obvious equation, and yet people still will promote this. Well, they've got to learn fear, right? Why? You know, it's good to have some fear. I mean, yeah, you want to be afraid of tigers and high spaces and poisonous snakes, um, which aren't thick on the ground these days, by the way. I mean, if you're in an American city, poisonous snakes, rare. Tigers, extraordinarily rare. Because you have some high buildings, but people sort of don't fall out that much. And, and so the, the other fears, all those other trained fears, are the ones we've acquired. Fear of embarrassment. Fear of failure. Notice this. Fear of failure. What the hell does failure mean? Not meeting some expectation, probably in our imaginations. So fear of having an imaginary goal that I don't reach in some kind of concrete way. Fear of not conforming, right? Fear of being cut out from the group. Again, as social animals, this is not totally irrelevant. But again, considering the society we live in, uh, it's pretty silly. We don't need close association with groups to survive in, in our environment. In fact, one of the problems with our society, of course, is the isolation of individuals, which also comes from various social fears, which is incredible, um, but true. So one is this fear has been beaten into us for a couple of thousand years. <clears throat> if you fear. Second is we're confused, horribly confused about what's joyful, about what's good, essentially. Let's just call the joyful good for the rest of the evening. Just make that equation. What's joyful is good. And again, not to blame everything on the Judeo-Christian ethic, but we can blame a lot. <laughs> you get kicked out of paradise for learning the difference between good and evil. <laughs> so once you learn what brings you joy and what brings you a lack of joy or ill health or things that are bad for you, you get kicked out. We don't want you around anymore. Because now you know joy. That's a weird story, by the way. It really, it's a story that just keeps giving. I mean, think about that. It, it just, you go, really? Once I know what gives me joy, what's the good? What's good for me gives me health, gives me vitality versus what's evil, avoid the evil. Don't you want people to know that? Answer, no. <laughs> Because it is hard to scare people. If you know what's good and you know what's bad, and somebody says you should be afraid of that, you'll go, not really, because that's good. <laughs> or if somebody says, well, that's bad, be scared. You're like, okay, that's evil, but I don't need to scare. I'm not afraid of it because I know what it is. I'm, I'm not terrified or afraid of, of that. So that. So no, now, boom, you're gone. Fear. You have to have that fear. And then we're confused, hopeful, hopelessly, then, on what gives us joy. If you lose the capacity to judge good and evil, then it's really hard to track down joy. And when you have a society that is dedicated to confusing you on this, um, it really becomes problematic. So think, so you have the Judeo-Christian layer there, which is, couldn't be any clearer, and then you get sort of modern uh, consumer capitalism, which is easy to assault because it's just so weird. 
Um, and there's some great things about it. As I mentioned before, is for almost all of human history, we lived in dearth. Right? Now we have material excess, and we still feel unfulfilled and needy. Part of the reason is because we're told to be unfulfilled and needy our entire lives, thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Your shoes are no good, you're ugly, your car is terrible, you live in the wrong neighborhood, your partner is unattractive. You know, you just go through the list. Everything about you is wrong. If you don't believe me, watch a TV commercial and, and you'll, you'll realize how unfortunate you are. <laughs> Uh, right? This, I mean, how many times have we heard this? And the answer, which is provided at the same time, is, but we can help you out because we're your friends. And we're here to help you out. And we're going to help you out by selling you something. This is not a revelation. We know this. And we know that buying that pair of shoes probably is not going to alter fundamentally our sense of well-being particularly if you have five or six or seven or eight or ten or twelve pairs of shoes. The next pair of shoes probably not going to have a huge impact. If you have no shoes, the first pair of shoes, huge impact. Let's be clear here. This is important. This is where we get confused. One pair of shoes from zero to one, spectacular change, big life improvement. One to two, meh. Fourteen to fifteen, really, no. You've lost track. This is not helping anymore. But we're told relentlessly that it will. But notice this is why it's distinction between happiness external, joy internal. That next material possession is an external thing. Now you can feel it, but mostly it's the imagined experience that we like. We imagine that if I buy the hat, the shoes, the record, the car, something good, I'll, then I'll feel good. Then I'll have that feeling. This is like an attachment to an abstraction. And we know this because we buy this and then it doesn't work and so then we buy other stuff. If it worked, that would be great. It would make life easy. Um, at the top of the page, you have the Epicurus quote. Uh, we must consider both the ultimate end and all clear sensory evidence to which we refer our opinions. For otherwise, everything will be full of uncertainty and confusion. This is Epicurus. Now, the ultimate end is that we die, for Epicurus, um, and all sensory evidence is the things we can feel and touch. Epicurus thought this is how you unconfused yourself. This is how you made things clearer. So if you, if you see something and it's beautiful, and you think, wow, that would enrich my life, and you buy it, and it does enrich your life, then you're not confused. That's an actual, real, palpable experience. But if it doesn't, then you need to reassess. Either it wasn't a very good object, or buying another thing isn't going to do it. I just saw a statistic from the World Economic Forum. They said since 2000, so this is not going way back in history, uh, we've been purchasing 60% more clothing per capita. That's like an, I mean, what the hell? How do we even, because it's not like in 2000 we were running around half naked. 
right? Probably from 1800 to 1850, that was a perfectly sensible jump. Probably from 1850 to 1900, another really good jump. Winter clothes, coats, sweaters, socks, jackpot, buy some more clothes, kids. But by 2000, we're pretty well clothed. <laughs> and the flip side of this, of course, is we throw away more clothes than ever which is like a weird cycle. We buy more clothes and we throw away more clothes. Which means, it suggests strongly that the purchase of clothes is not serving a function besides the purchase of clothing, right? It's, it's, it's become its own thing. Just the purchasing of it is like somehow helpful and then not and we throw it away and then we, yeah, as a society. And I think that's the system. But one reason we have the trouble picking joy is because this is the system we're in. Underlayment of fear and ignorance combined with a continual push for you to get out there and buy something or do something that has nothing to do with you and is almost certainly not designed to give you joy. Um, but one way to think of this distinction is uh, hap and luck Luck equals Vegas, right? And so the, here's, this is the slave concept writ large. I'm a slave. I don't like my situation. So I dream of this abstract paradise. That abstract paradise is Las Vegas, the land of luck, right? I will go for a brief interregnum. I will release myself, freedom of a sort. Yay, I can do anything I want. And what I do is daft shit so that I feel bad. This is the key. This is the joke about Vegas, right? You're going to go, you're going to do something, you're going to be hung over, you're going to take drugs, you're going to get a divorce, you're going to lose all your money. It's going to be great. <laughs> and then I'm going to return to my previous state. That's the key. And then I'll reflect on that period of license or liberation or whatever you want to call it where the chains were gone. That, that's perfect slave mentality. This is not joy. Epicurus would say, no. You're not choosing joy. You're choosing a brief escape with a planned return, right? People don't go, I want to go to Vegas and do this every single day. Because if they try that, what happens is they collapse. There's a, a horrible book. I don't recommend it, but a lot of people were reading it a while ago about a positively forced street, I think it was called, and the guy was down gambling in Vegas. But he wasn't a professional gambler before. And he was playing well, well, and he's up all night, and he's drinking coffee, and he's taking drugs, and he's drinking, and he's like, woo, I'm living the life. And then he pretty much has an almost complete collapse. And at the end of the book, he can't figure out whether or not that was good or bad. <laughs> and it's the weirdest thing because everyone's like oh okay people are like, well this is a great book I mean this guy's doing it and I'm like what is he doing he almost died like have almost a complete physical emotional mental collapse why is that good ah because you don't know the difference between good and evil things that bring you to the verge of complete emotional physical and intellectual collapse evil just put that out there <laughs> things that help you feel vital refreshed enlivened full of energy 
good. Again, not that confusing, you would think. Ah, but we struggle with this mightily. So another quote here. Um, this one is from um, Nietzsche, from The Gay Science by the Froelicke Wissenschaften. Uh, it's actually, the, it's, it's, it's generally translated as the gay science, but it's like the joyous science. Froelicke means like, wee. <laughs> right, that's, just, that's the translation. Wee. I don't know. It's, it's, it's like, like skipping through meadows. Froelicke. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uplift. It's happy. It's vibrant. It's, ah. it's, the, it's the joyous science. That's the title of the book. And he says, for believe me, the secret of for harvesting from existence the greatest fruitfulness and the greatest enjoyment is to live dangerously. Build your cities on the slopes of Vesuvius. Send your ships into uncharted seas. Live at war with your peers and yourselves. Be robbers and conquerors as long as you cannot be rulers and possessors, you seekers of knowledge. Build your cities on the slopes of Vesuvius. Well, we don't do that because we're afraid Vesuvius will erupt. Right, stop being afraid. Dangerous things are things that scare us. Yeah, well, is it a real fear? What is actually the entire downside here? You, you know, that's what he's saying. He's like, look, basically, joy comes from overcoming fear. Once you could overcome that, not confused, and the joy flows in. By the way, it's Frank Herbert, I don't quote a lot of science fiction writers, but it's such a great passage from Dune. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it is passed, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. When the, where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. And in this passage, it specifically says that's how you tell an animal from a human. If you can't overcome your fears, you're an animal. What's left when you overcome your fear is the human part. Now, you're never going to totally overcome our fears, but that sorting, that asking, which is a real fear? What is, what is, what is truly dangerous to me? So if we look at the list of things that probably are really dangerous to us, you go, okay, one, social isolation. I mentioned this before. Uh, it's better to smoke a couple of packs of cigarettes a day, drink heavily, and not exercise than to be lonely. The health outcomes are better for the people who are not exercising, smoking, and drinking. By the way, we call these Irish people, uh, right? There, there they are. That, that's that. Is they're in, they're in a social environment. They're smoking. They're drinking. They're not exercising, and they seem to live a long time. Why? They're not lonely. You should fear, or at least be concerned with loneliness, more than just about anything, from a mortality standpoint. Poisons. It seems reasonable to be afraid of poison, and I think this is true. Um, unfortunately, any quick review of the modern diet suggests we are not afraid of poison at all. 
right? I mean, just think about what we eat as a culture, if not as individually, but as a culture. For instance, that McDonald's exists is always sort of a shock to me. I'm like, hey, that still exists. Wow. I keep thinking that when we, the whole war with slavery was over, McDonald's was part of that and it was gone. But it turns out it wasn't part of it and it's not gone. Um, but if you look, look, if you eat lots of salt, lots of fat, lots of sugar, and lots of processed chemicals that you can't spell, bad shit happens to you. This is science. It has no impact on us whatsoever because we don't know good from evil. And we choose evil over and over and over and over again because we're told to choose evil. And we have a culture that reinforces that decision very strongly. If you're in a group of people, uh, this happened to me, by the way, and like, oh, we're going somewhere to travel. Oh, we're going to go to McDonald's and we're just going to pull in. I'm like, oh, come on. No, 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 no. Now you have social problems. If you're the one person saying, look, you've got to be high. We are not going into McDonald's. There has to be something else somewhere. There's like a something dead on the side of the road we can eat. Uh, you know, please, please. Um, and, and, but, but no, right, right. This, but so you are just culture, but everybody's been in this situation, right? It's not, hopefully it's not just me that, that you're just going, what, really? No, please, be serious. And yet there you are. Uh, people who become vegan or vegetarian must encounter this all the time. Right, where you go, oh, what's to eat? And it's like, oh, nothing. <laughs> I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian, and I still encounter this. So I can imagine the, the struggles they must go through. But notice it creates that social friction. And because there is no press in our culture to say, hey, avoid the evil, then people are like, well, what's wrong with you? Right? And if you say, well, that is poison, people are like, oh, no, people eat it all the time. Ah. <laughs> Yes, the slave people eat that all the time. It's a flavor of poison. Don't eat poison. How complicated is it? Very, very complicated, it turns out. On the other hand, if it gives you joy, eat it every once in a while. Really, who cares? But again, very suspicious about the external versus the internal. We just don't emphasize that. Think of how much time and energy we spend on uh, social status. Again, we're social creatures. Social status is important to us, and that's biologically sort of trained into us. But again, the fear of failing to meet certain social obligations, certain social status issues, often throws us completely and totally off track. And people get really depressed about these weird, like, social distinction things. Who got invited where? What awards were won or not won? What address do you live at? What zip code do you have? What's the prefix to your telephone number? Uh, I mean, I don't know if people know, like for a while, it's like 360 was the only number here. And then if you came later, you got 379. And um, somebody was telling me, oh, I wanted to get a 360 number. I'm like, what? <laughs> I, want to, I want to get a 360 number. I'm like, what? Well, because it has sort of status. I'm like, that is the most bizarre social status I've ever heard. A, an area code on your phone number is a social status. It turns out this is true. And this is not just here. It's all over the country. People move places so that they can get specific phones. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? 
These are arbitrarily assigned by a computer based on your geographic location. So let's build our status on that. You know, that, but it's, there you go. Um, and so we fear the failings of that. Well, is it good or evil? Does that help us? Or does that hinder us? Now, one of the positive things about joy and beginning to select for joy is it's a great eliminator. You don't have to think about a lot of things if you select for joy because all kinds of other things fall away. This is the beauty of making choice. So we all know we're inundated with choice, overwhelmed with choice. But if you choose something like, say, oh, I'm just going to sort of start sorting things for joy, you don't have to think about 99.999% of the other crap because it's just gone. And notice now if you're confused, what you're confused about is, ooh, what flavor of joy? Well, that's good, right? There's nothing bad happens now, right? All you can do is go for a less optimal joy. I, I mean, I'm not even sure that would be the correct terminology, right? You might have to sort a while and say, well, this is really pleasant, but this is even more pleasant. I like this even better. I could be inside reading books, or I could be out in the garden, or I could be at the coffee shop. Correct answer, coffee shop. But none of them are really wrong answers, right? No matter how you choose amongst these, you, you're, you're going to be okay, whatever your list of joys are. But instead, what I'm afraid we have often is, one, a list of obligations. We're incredibly good at creating obligations for ourselves. Often imaginary, by the way. Sometimes real-ish, but often just imaginary. And then we imagine that if we don't meet those obligations, some bad shit is going to happen. Um, and it, often it's not true. But even if it is true, how bad are the repercussions? Is this an obligation that brings you joy? In which case, great or not, in which case, probably try and ditch it. Right? Pretty straightforward, not that confusing. But we think, no, I have to do things or fear. And this is what Epicurus and um, Frank Herbert here from Dune are talking about. Great, go live with the fear, move into the fear. Go, here's the fear. Is that a real fear? Is that a really bad, terrible fear? When I was in graduate school, uh, it's like I think our, our class started at 50 and like five of us ever finished. Uh, so it was kind of this brutal, pointlessly, stupidly brutal program. Um, but uh, people flunked out, okay, but a couple of people, one of my friends, he just said, well, this is silly. I'm going to go into another program. I'm like, wow. <laughs> Well, that's clarity. This is abusive and painful, and this other program looks fun and enlightening. I think I'll go over there. Yeah. All right. That's see. That's that's see. But we don't think that way. We, oh, if I if I flunk out, I did my best, and then I failed. And failure is bad. But if I choose, then I'm a quitter. And we know being a quitter is bad. One thing I think we all need to do is embrace quitting. I really mean this. 
Because if you think you need to finish everything you start, it creates this huge barrier to starting. <laughs> you won't run experiments to find out where your joy really is. If you feel that once I start, well, I'm committed for the whole thing. See that psychological trap? Because I don't want to be a quitter. I've got a grit. I've got grit. I'm going to grit through it. I'm going to grit through it. And then it's going to be successful with my discipline and my drive. Woo! <laughs> but if you, if you feel that, oh, if I start, well, I don't want, if I start, then I'm, then I'm committed. And, and so well, I better not start anything for fear of failing. Well, not, of course, obviously not starting stuff is the failure. The second failure is to start stuff, discover you don't like it, and go, well, I better finish. No, don't finish. Drop the shit now. I picked up the rock. I found out I was hot. I dropped it. By the way, I'm terrible at this. This is ridiculous of me to say this because it's like my worst thing. I'm like, God damn it, I'm going to finish. If I start, I'm finishing. I'm just, it's like, no, you don't have to finish. Just set it down and go, well, didn't work. That's fine. And people go, well, did you finish? You go, nope, I quit. I am a quitter. <laughs> right? Very liberating. Very liberating. But it not just liberates you from the problem, it liberates you to experiment. It liberates you to give it a try. But see, see how strongly that runs against our ethos? Oh, you dropped out. Oh, you quit. Oh, you know. What went wrong? And if you say, well, I just wasn't as pleasant as I felt it should have been. So I quit. <laughs> then people are like, wow. And then you can say, apparently, I have a very little grit. <laughs> and I think it's something to strive for. You want to get rid of all the grit that you have. I think grit may be a, a problem that we want to deal with by, by sort of letting it go. Right? Unpleasant things, don't do them. And this frees up more time for pleasant things that bring you joy. Again, you wouldn't think it was that confusing. But I think it is really confusing. Uh, you know, I, I see parents, I don't have kids of my own, but I see parents and my, my nieces and all that. And I think a lot of parents now are torn because they're told that they have to do everything and they have to do everything well and they can't quit doing anything. And so, so they're just completely and totally overwhelmed. And so they don't get a lot of joy out of their kids because if they're getting joy out of their kids, they feel like they should be doing something else. If they're doing something else, they feel like they're supposed to be doing something with their kids. And it's like, that's sort of this impossible position, but that's just a social construct. Again, transvaluation. You're responsible at some point for going, well, I don't care what people think. I'm just going to either hang out with my kids or forget my kids. I'm going to work my job or whatever it is. Make some thing that works for you. But you're never going to please everybody. You're always going to be wrong. And people will happily tell you you're wrong, that you're doing your kids wrong. Um, and, and I keep thinking about this. And I thought, you know, it seems to me like the best thing you could possibly do for your children is give them an example of joy. Raise them in a joyful environment. So if you're joyful, probably they'll be joyful. And then, woo, look, we're all living in joy. Who the hell care what happens after that? Really? How far wrong can you go? 
I mean, uh, uh, Henry Miller once wrote a letter to Lawrence Durrell, um, and, and, he's, and Durrell had written him and said, oh, I would, you know, love to, you know, write more and all this, but, you know, the kids need shoes. And Miller wrote him back, kids don't need shoes. <laughs> right? No, they don't. A lot of barefoot kids in the world, man. What they need is to see their father being joyful, growing, expanding, thriving, being absolutely the best he can be. As an example, the truth is Durrell really didn't want to do what Miller was doing. Truth is he really liked what he was doing. But, you know, he didn't want to just say, oh, man, no, look, I, I dig this. I got a little family life, nice garden, nice stuff, shoes, got nice shoes. Mm-hmm. I like nice shoes. But, but Miller's, you know, no, you don't. Right? What, do, what do you need? And so that sort of fundamental confusion uh, just throws us off. But if you remember that choosing joy will help narrow all the other problems and then free yourself to experiment. Because again, we, we haven't been trained to this in our society. In fact, I can find it almost nowhere. Oddly, the only people who really seem to talk about joy are Christians. This is bizarre and yet true. And what they say is, if you surrender to the fear of God, you'll feel joyful. <laughs> And I'm like, there's sort of a perverse masochistic logic there. (laughs) And the logic is, once you surrender all responsibility for yourself, and you completely absorbed all possible fear, I think you get kind of a weird rush. (laughs) Right? It must be like jumping out of an airplane, you know? (laughs) This is, I think this is sort of the free fall of parachutists. Half of you is like, ah! <laughs> and then you get that just like adrenaline rush. I'm afraid of everything. <sighs> the difference is that many parachutists have parachutes. Christianity, not so much. Uh, but so, you know, it's everything but the parachute. But that's all I can figure out because they actually do become interested in this joy thing. But I imagine it's because they're so inundated with fear that it makes them have a heightened sense of awareness of joy. And we're just in this sort of never-never land of of trying to go from like, oh, appeasement to distraction to something else. And so I want to return back to this notion of the internal when you begin thinking about it. Um, This great phrase from Henry James, he says, it was a crowded but empty day. And I love that phrase, a crowded but empty day. Lots of stuff happened, nothing inside. I'm sure we've all had those days. Um, that, that's, the, that's, that's the absence of joy. Stuff happened, but nothing inside. Just vacuous, just obligations, just uh, putting on the faces to meet the faces that you meet. Good old T.S. Eliot. If you'd like to know the poet who specializes in this, T.S. Eliot is your man. Uh, you know, that just, that sense of dis- distance, uh, divorce from what's going on around you, even while you participate in it. 
That is that absence of joy. We've been overwhelmed by discipline and duty and obligation and drive. And another phrase that I like and one that I think is um, really worth thinking about is anything worth doing is worth doing well. We've all heard this phrase, right? And the more I pondered this and been pondering for a long time is I think it becomes sort of more resonant for me. And the word that I like there is well, in the sense of wellness, well-being, whole, complete, well. And how much of our time do we spend doing shit that is not worth doing? And so we do a crappy job, or we do just enough, or we get it done. And then how do we feel? Crappy. (laughs) Or at best, relieved. If I take a vice grip and clamp it on my hand, and it hurts, and then I take the vice grip off, it's good to take the vice grip off. That's a relief. This really isn't a healthy pattern. (laughs) But think about how much we do is simply, oh, I put the vice grip off, and then I took it off, and I felt better. At some point, you might want to rethink the whole vice grip thing. Right? The whole putting it on and squeezing it down. Oh, it hurts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, feels better. If we're doing things that aren't worth doing, we cheat ourselves of the joy of doing something well. And if you take your time and your intention and turn it to whatever it is you want to do, I have no idea, and you do it complete, full attention, and you do it well, well, whole, well, well, wellness, well-being, healthfully. Then you'll probably feel good. The nature of joy. It cultivates it and brings it out. And the great thing is, while you're doing those things that make you feel that way, you're not doing all of the shit that doesn't. See how that works? It's genius. It's like the great, great sorting mechanism. Know the good, choose the good, choose the joyful. And then that, when you're doing that, you're not doing all the other things. And then eventually, hopefully, you, you know, if you're doing this correctly, you'll know because it's back to Epicurus. It's what you sense. You'll feel it. It's not about a commercial or an ad. It's not somebody telling you it's great. If anybody's seen the movie Brazil... Uh, there's a scene where they go out to dinner and everybody orders their dinner in this very fancy restaurant and everybody gets the same plate of gray slop but they put a picture of a different meal in front of each of them Uh, and then they eat the gray slop and talk about how great the meal and the picture is right That, that is the complete embrace of abstraction and, and yet we do this. We really, as a culture, we do this systematically. We keep going, oh, that's a nice picture, and they eat the gray slop underneath. You go, how can, how can you be confused? Trust your senses. Trust how you feel inside. Give yourself that space to go, oh, this seems good because I, it makes me feel good. It seems sustainable. I don't have a hangover tomorrow. Or if I do have a hangover tomorrow, then you go, well, that may not have been as good as it seemed in retrospect. Or if it makes you feel terrible after a day, a week, a month, then probably it's not good. 
But you should be able to judge. It shouldn't be that confusing. But it is confusing because think of how we've been brought up. You have to sit through school. Why? It's good for you. You have to sit there and do this. Why? It's good for you. You have to go there and do that. Why? It's good for you. You have to go and take that job. Why? Man's got to make earn a living. Woman's got to get a career. We're told that you have to, must, should, need to, that they don't ask you what brings you joy. And again, this doesn't mean bad shit's not going to happen to you. That's, that's the amazing thing. Really doesn't help that much with, a, with that. But what it does mean is in the interregnums between bad stuff, which hopefully becomes greater the more you choose joy, you have joy. Right? The worst thing that can happen to you is you can mistake where your joy was and so then you can pursue your joy differently. And by the way, I imagine it will also change. What brings us joy early, mid, late, that's going to be a changing, evolving, moving, and, and well it should be because we should be growing. Again, this is the notion of putting things down. If you pick something up and you really, really like it, and it is joyful, and it does bring you joy, and then at some point it's like, oh, not so much. Just put it down. You know, just just put it down. A friend of mine worked a, a job that he liked for about ten years, uh, and then he worked for another five, and he said those last five were not good. And finally, he was probably going to get arrested because of the stuff he was doing at work. Uh, because he has not stopped enjoying his job in any way and just had become miserable and sort of self-damaging. Uh, and they offered him an early retirement buyout. And so he took it. And at one point he said, oh man, if I just hung on for a couple more years, I would have had the full retirement, blah, blah, blah. And I said, what would have happened if you held on for another six months? He said, I'd be in jail right now. <laughs> right. So started joyful and then became poison. Put it down. But again, we're afraid of that. Break those patterns. Open it up. Um, and so this is, the, this is the important concept of choosing joy. Is it, it, it does all kinds of things for you. But to do that, you have to first, or at least in partly, deal with your fear. You want to learn to sit with it. What's the worst that can happen? Worst, oh, I could go bankrupt. Really? People, millions of people go bankrupt. If you're worried about going bankrupt, don't worry about it. Let go, woo, be free. You can go bankrupt a bunch of times and become president of the United States. <laughs> right? Isn't that great? What a great country! <laughs> right? Oh, he might not love me. Well, if someone doesn't love you because you're pursuing your joy, ooh, probably don't want to be with him anyway. She might be a bit poisonous. Or things have just changed. Well, and that... The neighbors might laugh. I, I know that sounds absurd and ridiculous, and yet watch people. We're very neighbor sensitive as a culture. It's quite extraordinary, in fact, sometimes how neighbor sensitive we are. Um, and, and, but we do feel it because we are social animals. But if you can sit with those fears and go, is this a real fear? Is this really a tiger? Sometimes it's a real tiger. Right? I could fall off this building and die. Great. 
draw a line. Let's not do that. <laughs> but generally, uh, the downside is very, very high by all historical standards, by the way. And that's where we started from, transvaluation of all values. Our downside is so high by historical standards that it's not down, it's up. We fail up. <laughs> I, always, I always like to remember Henry the Fourteenth, the Henry the Fourteenth, yeah, Louis the Fourteenth, Louis the Fourteenth there in Versailles. The wine used to freeze in the glasses on the table because they had no heat. Louis the Fourteenth could not afford heat. Actually, it was just stupid architecture, but nonetheless, heat <laughs> was hard to come by. Right? We don't fail and lose heat. We can have clothes. It's great. You know, our, again, our down is so up. So if you, you know, feel the fear and go, right, fear. Look at it and go, is this a real fear? Snake, tiger, social isolation that will bring death. If yes, hey, probably avoid that. If no, it's almost always going to be no. Then go, wow, is this interfering with my joy? Is it, why would this prevent me from choosing to make a decision or not make a decision, to do something or not do something? It really shouldn't. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Joy, not fear.